All right, today, like I told you guys last week, we have a very special treat. Um, he's a friend of mine, but he's also my mentor. He's a man that has changed my life and pointed me in the direction of missions and uh, full-time ministry. And I just want to read you on the skillet what uh, Jack Hayford uh, said about Dr. Blair. If you guys, it's on the first page of the skillet. Charles Blair is a legendary figure in the gospel of Christ. Since post-World War II years, he began to pioneer approaches to evangelism that have shaped the thinking of the body of Christ in this nation and around the world. Until today, he stands as a bulwark of integrity to the gospel. He is as outstanding of a missionary pastor as I know and as great an enthusiast in the deepest sense of the word world for pastoral leadership as anyone I've ever met. I've told you guys a little bit about him. Um, he took me to Ethiopia when he retired from being a pastor for 50 years at Calvary Temple in Denver. He decided that he wasn't going to go play golf, but he was going to go change the nation of Ethiopia. He's planted over a thousand churches in unreached villages of Ethiopia, places where they've never seen a white person before. And he's planted in them missionaries who's he, who he has trained and brought others over to that nation to train. So he, he is... He is a world changer, a nation shaker, someone who's used to speaking to entire churches. And because he's doing a favor for me, you guys get a treat to have him come and speak to you guys today at the Mill Sunday School. So everybody welcome up Pastor Blair. Thank you. Thank you. I am, I am so thankful for the opportunity to be here. I was thinking driving down here with my wife, Betty, who I'll introduce in a moment, about the uh, farmer who hired a, a city man to help him in an emergency. He had never been on a farm, let alone a dairy farm. So the farmer who, the farmer who owned the farm instructed this new beginner as to how to milk a cow. And left him, trusting that would everything come out all right. Only when the farmer returned to the hired hand, he had finished milking the cow and had this big, this big bucket. And he was getting the cow to drink the milk back, pouring it back down his mouth. And so they inquired why. He said, well, uh, it came out pretty thin the last time I'm going to run it through again. Somebody told me that's how I got to come back. I was here a year ago. Pretty thin, huh? Okay, I'll try my best to do better. I'm delighted Betty's here too. My wife, Betty, we have been married, I think, 63 years. Is that right, darling? Stand up. I thought I loved her when I met and married her, but I didn't even know the meaning of the word love as it has developed over these many years. Somebody asked me, uh, what's the secret of happy marriage? And I said, oh, it's real simple. I took her on our 25th anniversary to Honolulu, and on our 50th anniversary, I went and picked her up.
I somewhat wrestled in what the Lord would be pleased with me sharing with you for this occasion. Because we're living in such a unique time in human history. It's hard to really try to define it. Betty and I were sitting on the couch last night watching Fox present a story about the problems with the Muslim and Islam, etc. I, uh, I would like to just give a contrast for a moment. And it's going to be difficult to squeeze it all in, but you're alert and you're ready to listen and I'll move as rapidly as I can. I want to look for a moment or two about a little slice of history. About a 10-year slice. I would like then to compare that or to lay along beside that another slice of history that's within the sacred scriptures. I believe it was May of 1996 when a, about 10 years ago, when a very brilliant engineer was expelled from his own home of Saudi Arabia and was uh, taken to live in Sudan, right next door to where we're laboring now in Ethiopia. And then eventually he was relocated in Afghanistan. And it was there that he was given permission by the Taliban to have a little area called his own emirate, which, as you know, is a territory for the camps and training compounds. And he became this man that I refer to, the ruler of that area. This qualified him to have the title Emir, E-M-E-R. Sometimes in the Islam language, it's translated uh, prince or sheikh, as the case may be. This man became a recognized teacher of the Islam message. Even though we have no record of him ever going to seminary or any training for that background. Soon, however, this man has literally made himself known literally around the world. And you know who I am referring to, uh, Osama bin Laden. I noticed in my research some days ago that in August of 96 and in February of 98, he issued a call. He issued a call for intensification and made a declaration for an all-out war for the United, against the United States of America and our allies. I know that you already know that slice of history, but I wanted to refer to it so that I could ask the question, why did he do that? What was the motivating factor? What was the cause that this man that I've just described his background, issues the call for intensification and say that he wages an all-out war against what we Americans stand for along with our allies. I believe I have found the answer in my research, at least a great part of the answer to not only why did he do that, which he did, 
But why is it that so many people today, children, your age, young people, and adults, are offering their lives as a sacrifice for what they now believe? So when we see the all-out intensification emphasis, and we see what is happening worldwide in a matter of a few short years, we have to ask, as Christian believers, why did he do that? What is behind that? Then I want you to look with me for a moment at another statement made by another leader. And that is that this is none other than our Savior who gives to us the book of Revelation. And that book of Revelation, as you know, is a book that has none other than Christ at the head of the church. The church of the end time. The church of the end time. Jesus gave us this chapter, chapter uh, 3 of the book of Revelation, verse 15. Before I read that, I want you to refresh your memory if you can, or if you have not learned this, it would be interesting to you, and that is that the um, Islam message is very fascinating to us as believers to analyze and digest what the truth is being given as truth. Five things a Muslim is required before he can be called a righteous person. I was trying to grab my my Koran and I couldn't lay my hands on it, so I wrote out these words out of that Koran in my on my notes. Let me quote, and it says, quote, Righteous is he who believes in Allah and the last day and the angels and the scriptures and the prophets. Five things a Muslim must believe to become righteous. One, must believe in Allah, their God. Two, they must believe in the last days. Interesting there. Three, in the angels. Four, in the scriptures, their scriptures. And five, in the prophets. I think you know, but let me just really move quickly through the next line. That is that Muslims believe in Jesus. They believe that he is a prophet. Jesus is a prophet. They believe that he, Jesus, is coming back. They believe that there are signs that point that his coming back is soon. When he comes back, he is going to defeat. He will defeat the Antichrist. He will end all wars. He will usher in an era of peace and justice. He declares in this writings that they believe in bodily resurrection at the end. And that they believe in final judgment. And they believe in a heaven. And they believe in a hell. But listen to this. They also believe that before Jesus can return to earth. The entire world must be under Islam control. That speaks to us that there is planned warfare. Only God knows if that's ever going to happen in our lifetime, but that's their declaration. Their passion, their intensity, their zeal 
is being manifested more and more as time slips away. Now, when I look at this last phrase, when I read what God's Word has to say, I realize that we've got two things here. On one hand, we have a man with a voice that's now being heard worldwide, declaring intensification is needed and all-outness, more zeal, more intensity in, in, in the matters of which I've already listed. On the other hand, there is another world leader whose name is Jesus, who gives to us the glimpse of what the church of Jesus Christ should be like and what it is like in the last days, in the last days, the days before Christ comes to set up his kingdom on earth. Let me just read one verse for time's sake. Our Lord says, beginning in verse 15, chapter 3 of Revelation, I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. You are lukewarm. Therefore, be zealous and repent. End of time. So we have two leaders, two voices, expressing poles apart in their theology and in their commitments as to end time events. I guess the question would be good to ask, who, who do you think is going to win this war? If both of these wars are going to come to the surface, who's going to win? Is it going to be the church of Jesus Christ? Or is it going to be those that have descri- described their, their teaching otherwise? I know that we hope something, but you can see that the cry for all of us today is to match the intensity to be more zealous, to be more concerned as to what is happening in our world today than perhaps any other generation. I may not be here. And that's one reason why not being here perhaps drives me to take opportunities when I look into the faces of the age group of which you represent and your zeal and your interest. That is that we are now understanding that we are living in days that are fraught with importance. And I want us to focus on those things for just a few moments. First of all, I just want to remind all of us that we, as Christians, we have a great heritage in, in, in recorded in the Word of God, a great heritage about men and women who were very intense in their, in their faith. They were very intense in their faith. Abraham, Peter, Paul, you name it. They were intense in their faith, so much so that they made a difference in their world by the intensity of that faith that they shared in their generation. The priority that they gave these great people of yesteryear, the priority that they gave was an emphasis upon God's prophetic word. Prophetic in the sense that it was spoken by God to man before it happened. Therefore, the difference between Abraham, the difference between Isaac and Jacob, Joseph, the difference between Peter and Paul, etc., etc., is the fact that these people then had an intensity, the kind of intensity that our Lord is crying for, for his end-time church. As the events begin to point with unerring accuracy, those events begin to come to focus. 
So therefore, you begin to realize that if we are going to do what Christ would have us to do, be what Christ would have us to be in these last days, then intensity or zeal will play a very important part. The reason that 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 difference is made by the emphasis upon God's prophetic word is that God's prophetic word brings the message of what the world will be like and the hope that there is in Jesus Christ. And that's what the world is longing for today, hope, hope that only God can give. Because in that uh, priority given to the prophetic word of God, I jotted down here, is a great deal of truth about the last days, about final judgment, about the rewards that we're going to receive, about eternity. The passionate commitment is simply bringing it into focus of what perhaps we will face in our lifetime. I trust we'll be ready for that. Let me show you as an illustration the life of Abraham, a man you are very well acquainted with in the scriptures, the intensity of this man Abraham. I'd like to read some scriptures, but time won't permit, but just noticing Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Romans 4. My wife was reading, had no idea what I was going to teach this morning. She asked me to read for her two verses out of the fourth chapter of Romans, wondering if she had seen my notes. She's memorizing some scriptures out of the living scripture, uh, the living Bible, and she wanted me to let her quote it to see if she's doing it. And uh, it simply is saying about Abraham, a, a recommendation that we read that life of his, that, that the story of that life because of the emphasis that he gives. Tremendous scriptures there that when then he was promised three great things. He was promised a land to go into the land of uh, the Canaanites, into Canaan and establish a piece of ground, given a piece of ground that, that they still have to this day by and large. Secondly, that out of that new place of, of uh, dwelling, they are going to have a, uh, they're going to have a new nation birthed. And though that new nation is that place and that people called, called Israel today. And thirdly, the third promise was, Abraham, if you leave Ur of the Chaldees and go to the Canaanites, the land, I'll give you that land. I'll give it to your heirs. I'll give it to you and to Isaac and to Joseph, etc., etc. And it shall last through the centuries. Forever and ever, that's a piece of ground that's yours. Secondly, out of that, you can have a nation birthed. And that is as the sands of the sea. Then he says, quite interesting, that there is coming out of that land and out of that people a Savior. And the star will appear in Bethlehem of Judea. The first time in the Bible, in the unfolding of God's plan, is it indicated in the scriptures the announcement of where that Savior would be born in Bethlehem. So those three promises were given to this man Abraham. Promises in God's prophetic word that would happen. So when God told Abraham to offer his son Isaac, you understand after looking at it from that perspective why Abraham was quick to obey God. He did not quarrel with God. He did not hesitate. He simply moved with rapid speed till they came to Mount Moriah and therefore you know the story. When he tied the knot and put him on that altar and raised his hand with the knife to take his life, there was no argument. There was no slowing down the process. There was no stalling. He was not afraid. Why? 
the prophetic word of God had told him that his bloodline would be the bloodline that would be the part of the birth of Jesus Christ. So he had to have the only child he had, the one and only child that he had, was that child Isaac. Therefore, he was not afraid. I knew God could say, I knew that God would be able to raise him from the dead if need be. I'm paraphrasing. And therefore, he with haste went to Mount Moriah. You see, when we have a glimpse of what is going to happen through God's prophetic word, it should change us. It should produce the zeal and the zest and the opportunity that those revealed scriptures give to us. Therefore, when you see this man, Abraham, you begin to see the intensity of his tremendous faith. I, I jotted down here another illustration of Job. Wow, how intense he was. Why? Well, because he believed in the prophetic word of the Lord. So you know that he suffered loss. You know that he lost his health, his wealth, his children, his friends. And in the midst of all of that, he had a cry of intensity that verified his faith. By the way, it was my great honor a few years ago to write the commentary for the book of Job of the new spirit-filled Bible. I say that to say that I was at that time, unbeknownst to anybody except Betty, going through the, great, the hardest trial of my entire life in ministry. And in the midst of that trial, I get this invitation to write the... Uh, the, to, to edit and to give some information of big background, etc., of the, of the life of Job. When I got that, I knew they didn't know. I thought, well, this is a time of my life. And that, that book, Job, changed my life. Because within that intensity of, of his losses that he suffered through, he was able, because he believed in the inerrant word of God, he believed in the prophetic word of God, Therefore, believing in it, he had that faith that was intense. That's why you know that verse. Job thirteen fifteen. Though he slay me. What's the rest of it? Yes, though God slays me. He had lost everything else except his life. He said, if God slays me, he says, I'm still going to hold on. I love it. Yet will I trust him. There was a relationship, but there was also a prophetic word of God that now was, was a part of Job's life. And as I searched into the scripture, I began to see what value having a faith and taking action as it relates to God's, God's great eternal word. So in the last chapter, I mean, verse, uh, chapter nine, 19, verse 25 and 26, for I know, I know, I like that. Job, in all of the suffering, he said, but for I know my Redeemer lives and he shall stand at the last on, he shall stand at last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know that in my flesh, I will see God. What was that? It was his prophetic word that Job understood and therefore his faith was intense. The zeal was tremendous because he believed it. He gave priority to God's prophetic word. Pro the prophetic word to find lodgment in his heart to be a source. And then I come to this astounding verse. Jesus was so intense when he came. He was intense. Why? He was intense because he believed in the, the eternal word of God. The pro prophetic word of God. Have you ever noticed? I hadn't. 
I have never noticed until recently the intensity of one phrase. It's the second verse of the 12th chapter of Hebrews reminding us why the Son of God was willing to leave heaven and come down to earth and become a crucified Savior for our behalf. One line, one little verse. Here it is. Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. I ask you a question. What joy? What was set before him? What did he have that made him full of joy? What was it that God allowed to come into Job's life? Excuse me, not Job's life, but to, into the life of Jesus to where he had that understanding what God was going to do. And therefore, the joy that flooded him was, such, was sufficient for him with his zeal and dedication. He was willing to endure the cross. What was it? I'm sure as well as I'm standing and looking at you that it was promises. It was prophetic promises that God gave to his son Jesus. That if he would do this and this and this. Then he would provide a church. And eventually he said I'll let you come back God speaking. I'm going to let you come back to this earth. And on your way to this you pick up the bride. And you'll sit down with them at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And then they'll come, we'll come, you'll come back with them and establish the kingdom reign for a thousand years. And then he'll create a new heaven and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. Those promises. Those promises. Those promises had given, been given by the Father to Jesus. And when he understood them, that was the joy that was set before him. He was now willing to endure the cross simply because he understood the prophetic word was going to be a reality. Why don't you give a good applause to Jesus right now? Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Let me just grab one more. I, I get to go till he raises his hand and I have five minutes and, and I'm not looking at, I'm not looking in that direction. <laughs> Let's get into the New Testament. Notice Paul. Wow. You're so well read. I'm sure in the scriptures, especially this just thrills you to death. He believed in the prophetic word of God. I guess you know he was beaten and stoned and shipwrecked and had, had what he called a thorn in the flesh. Why did he quit? Why did he not quit? The intensity and kept increasing. And you wonder why he just didn't give it up. He did not give it up because of what he said when he wrote the letter to the Romans. Chapter 8, verse 18. Paul said, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. In the taste of the suffering, he understood there was another great future that was the glory of God and the power of God that he would become a part of. Because he believed in the prophetic word of God, it gave him intensity. It gave him zeal to go on and suffer. I will suffer and I will suffer I will suffer as he had, as simply because he had had that taste of reality and those promises. Wow. Then I scratched down here. The martyrs were intense as, because they believed in the prophetic word of God. The book of Hebrews talks about the ultimate faithful martyrs from Stephen to the apostle Peter. 
and early missionaries such as Nate Saint and Jim Elliott and thousands of people. We just lost two young men your age in Ethiopia just last month by martyrdom. We've planted a thousand churches in the last three years where the church had never been before. And now we have those church buildings where 40,000 people in those thousand churches are now worshiping every Sunday throughout. That's not very many when you think take a thousand into 40,000. But just remember three years ago there was not a single church in that particular part of Ethiopia. But the enemy raised up, began to persecute. They burned 16 of our churches in just a matter of days. And then we lost a couple of young, young peach of guys. One had eight children, two wives, two wives before his conversion. They bound the two wives and the eight children in ropes. And that gave him a chance to repent and re- go back to the Muslim worship. The following day, if he would, then they would spare his life. But he said, I cannot give up Jesus. And so he held fast. They pushed him in the corner and with the butt end of their gun, they kept hitting him in the head until his brains came out and he died. Died with eight children watching. There's only a matter of weeks till his comrade that he had led to Christ who started a church in a village a few miles down the road suffered the same consequences. Why did they stand true? Why didn't they give up? You know why. The intensity of their lives has influenced me. So much so that I, some, I, I wondered last night when Fox News talked about the people that were willingly, gladly giving their lives so that certain achievements and certain things can happen in their behalf. I pray that the intensity, the intensity that we're seeing today by other religions will become a grip in our own lives and especially the martyrs here. Look at this verse. It's verse uh, chapter 13, chapter 11 of Hebrews, verse 13. These all died in the faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. What a story. They believed in the prophetic word of God and it gave their intensity to be willing to die I got to close because my time is slipping away but then notice what Peter wrote and I love this Peter wrote in chapter chapter 1 verse 19 his second letter we have also a more sure word of prophecy whereunto you do well and take heed as unto a light that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. Our faith ought to be so intense today and now in this period of time because we have a more sure word of prophecy. He is referring, in fact, to the Mount of Transfiguration when our Lord was transfigured. He was then understanding that at that time he heard the voice of God speak in the cloud. The only time the holy cloud of of his presence ever appeared in the New Testament And there, in that particular moment, he was translucent. He was as if electric jet from the inside until he was was a a burning fire. Uh, The scripture says that his his face was like a shining of the noonday sun and that his clothing was like the flashing of lightning. 
in that transfiguration, in that great moment, God sent two of his prime men, one who preached about the law and gave the law to the world. The other was the highlight of a great prophet, Elijah and Moses. God sent those two men down to talk to Jesus about the Exodus. The only time the word Exodus appears in the New Testament, it's, it's, a, it's not a Greek, it's, not a, it's a, a, not a Hebrew word. It occurs mostly in the Old Testament, especially the Exodus of, uh, of Egypt. But there, you get this great picture in your mind. You can see it so true. It's because they, that he heard that voice. That voice said, this is my beloved son. Go ahead and fulfill the fulfillment. Otherwise, there will be no redemption. He was there. He heard the voice. He heard. He saw, he saw these two men, Moses and Elijah. Now, he says in his epistle, he's now the bishop. He's in old age. It's his second letter. And he writes and he says to rejoice because... We heard that voice. We were there. We saw his glory manifested. I can't help but remember that when he said that, wrote that, that he was uh, with Jesus at Caesarea Philippi and asked Jesus, Jesus asked them, who do you say that I am? And they said, we, we, we believe you're the Christ, the son of the living God. Well, Jesus said, blessed are you. That's right, right on. That's the first time you've ever confessed it. But let me confess something to you. I'm not going to reign now. I'm going to go to the cross. I'm going to Jerusalem immediately and they're going to beat me. They're going to kill me. They're going to bury me. But I'll be raised the third day. And Peter said, oh, no, 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 you're not going to be put to death. And patted, I suppose, his, uh, his sword on his side. He was ready to take life in his own hands and protect Jesus. But Jesus said, no, you don't understand. You speak as men speak, not as God speaks. And now, now, this man, Peter, who was there, offered to defend him is now saying in his epistle, he said, we have that wonderful gospel, that wonderful prophecy, which is greater than anything else. And therefore we ought to rejoice because that prophet, that prophetic word comes to us. It causes us to be willing. And then for his own martyrdom, he was crucified upside down. I just want to close and wrap this up now for just a moment. I just want you to see how it's so interesting that God is now today challenging us by the illustration of others who, unfortunately, the wrong tribe is on fire. The wrong source of news is coming from the wrong source of people. But it's a showdown. I don't know what's going to happen. I said, I probably won't be here. You're young. You'll probably be here because this is unfolding rapidly. How rapidly? But, and I'm, I'm 86 years old, so I may not make it. I may not be here when, when the Lord comes. But I can say this, that I look forward to that glorious day, whether I'm alive or whether I'm dead. The dead in Christ are going to rise first. And we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. It's this intensity that I'm crying for today. It is this vision. It is this awareness of the times in which we are now living. So I jot down a couple of suggestions of how I believe it's possible for us to increase the intensity of our lives. Number one, to investigate the scriptures, especially... The prophetic scriptures. I don't know how much you've been reading the prophetic scriptures. I will name them. Daniel, Ezekiel, Isaiah, Zechariah, Revelation. 
I know what people say to me when I teach sometimes prophecy. They say, well, I don't read it because it's too difficult to understand. It's too heavy. I say to them and I say to you, the scripture says that all scripture is given by inspiration and is profitable. Are we going to say it's too hard when the Bible, when God said who wrote the Bible that it's profitable for all of us? I pray that you'll reconsider and let us, let you become that man or woman that intensifies and sends out a call that you now believe with all of your heart the truth of what God has declared that the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. I pray that you will begin to investigate the scriptures. How happy I am that a man helped be my mentor at a key point in my life. I ran around the world when I was just beginning my ministry in Denver. Two other young men, the three of us, one was Lester Summerall, the other was Ernie Reb, one pastored in South Bend, Indiana, the other pastored in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and I was pioneering a church in the city of Denver. We saved up our nickels and went around the world, both the first time for both of us. When we got to Israel, we found that there was a divided city. This was the summer of 1950. Israel became a nation in 1948. It was 18 months after Israel became a nation that we were there as a guest. But Israel, the city of Jerusalem, was, was uh, divided. There was a barbed wire fence. There were armed soldiers. So if you came in on one side to visit, you then could only see so much. And then you had to fly out 24 hours in one of the islands nearby, get a new visa, and come back in on the other side because the city was divided. So we did so. We wanted, of course, to go down to the River Jordan, and to get there, we had to, we had to go out and come back and go down, and we rented a cab to go down there because who wants to go to the Holy Lands and, and not go into Jordan? Furthermore, we hired a cab, and we wanted, uh, we wanted to have a picture taken, of uh, somebody baptizing somebody. There were three of us. So somebody had to volunteer to be a sinner. <laughs> somebody had to volunteer to, uh, uh, volunteer to preach the sermon. And so while we're quarreling this, while we're quarreling about this in a nice way, the cab driver said, Oh, you can't imagine how happy I am. I am an Arab. I just recently accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior. And I've been hoping that somehow I would find somebody that would baptize me so that nobody else would see it because they'll kill me if they find it out, take me and drive me out of my family. Then the three of us got in a fight of who was going to baptize him. <laughs> the, the, moment, the moment of a lifetime. And as a result of that, that indelible impression of what we felt and what we sensed in that. Well, when then, when 1967... I walked out on the front porch to get my morning Denver Post and opened it up and it said the six-day war has ended and all of Jerusalem is now free from the bondage of any caretaker. For the first time, I'm quoting, I'm quoting the Post, for the first time in 2,200 years, for the first time, all of the city of Jerusalem is now occupied in control of the, of the, of the uh, people of Israel. 
uh, I said, oh, I, I'm going to have to take it serious because I was impressed then, and now I get this message from the Denver Post. So I enrolled at Fuller as a special student, special not in that I was special, but specially assigned subject because I was still pastoring. And a man by the name of Wilbur Smith was the prophetic teacher at Fuller, and he trained me and mentored me and got my love for the, for the prophetic word caused me to enter into a whole new dimension of life and gospel and everything. I just want to encourage you today to get into those uh, great, uh, great chapters, great books that gives to us the unerring word, especially in the thought of prophecy. I would pray that you would be able to be one who understands what's happening in the world today. Become a student. Let your light shine. Let it be a day when you will have something to say about what's going on in this world. You have an answer to the problem. Read the Koran. I know I've read it. It's dry reading, but it'll make you upset emotionally as you read. But nonetheless, so you can say to whoever and however, I've read it. I understand. Is this what you teach? Is this what I understand you teach? So that you enter into a kindness and a dialogue, but the zeal and the zest. That's why Jesus said, you're neither hot nor cold. And since I can't use you this way, I need you to ask me to forgive you and repent and be zealous. If this doesn't make us zealous of what's going under our noses now, what will make us to be zealous? I pray, I pray that God in his mercy will grant unto you a revelation knowledge of the overall magnificent plan, the hope that we have, the hope that we have. Hallelujah. It's a living hope. We're on this side of the resurrection. That's why Peter, when he wrote his second epistle, he said, Blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath begotten us again unto a living hope by the resurrection of the dead and to an inheritance that is incorruptible and that un is undefiled and that fadeth not away, which is reserved in heaven for you who, who have that glorious promise of his love. I just pray today that this time that you recognize it's unusual. It's first time things are happening. It, more and more, I said to Betty last night, more and more we see the boldness of those that are claiming certain things are going to happen and certain things may happen. I am not worried because if he comes and I'm not there when the trumpet sounds, well, I'm going to rise to meet him in the air. So there's hope for the living and the dead. Would you say amen? May God bless you is my prayer. Thank you. How much time do I have left? Is that it? All right. Bye. All right, everybody. Uh, man, that was amazing. Thank you so much, Charles Blair. Dr. Charles Blair. All right, everybody. Um, we have a whole month of this. Should we, do you want to do Q&A? We, yeah, we have like eight minutes for some Q&A, questions and answers. If, if you both would want to come up here, and here's a mic for you, Betty. Do you trust my wife? <laughs> yeah. Here's a microphone. I would like... Uh, maybe to prime the pumps as, as people begin to think about questions that they might want to ask you. On the back of the Sunday school millet is a quote that uh, um, 
I just maybe someone could give me one. The greatness of a man. Yes. Could, could you say that for us? And then I would just ask that you uh, maybe talk just for a second about that, because the last time you talked at the Mill Sunday School was about a year ago, and you spent a lot of time on that quote. And to me, it was just wow. It was a wow moment for me in thinking about my life as a whole. And it says, "The greatness of a man is determined." By the cause he lives for and the price he is willing to pay to achieve it, Charles Blair. Well, my mentor, who was the president, who was the district superintendent for the Assemblies of God in the state of Nebraska, he uh, met me in Minneapolis, Minnesota. I had just signed a contract to be a career with J.C. Penney's because I was broke, came from a poor family, no hope for education. I'd spent a year at North Central Bible College, didn't get any interest in or help to preach. It was just flat. And so I signed up to see the world and sell shoes for J.C. Penney's. When he asked to see me, and he asked me to tear up my contract, go to Nebraska, and let him mentor me. And he said, I'll ask you to look every time, every word, every time the word success is in the Bible, and every time the word failure is in the Bible, find out the principles of why they failed or whatever. Then look in the, 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 the literature of the ages, books that you can read a book a week, and I'll help you, etc. And that got started, and down the road, 15 years later, I summed up, having gone out to interview and so forth and so on. By the way, uh, he ordained me into the ministry, he introduced me to my wife, Betty, and we, he married us. And then we went to Denver for a, holly, for a honeymoon. And a group of people, I think 13 or 14 people were gathering, wanted to pioneer a church. And we became the pastor and stayed there for 50 years. So that's, it. that's how I gave birth to that little line. So I believe it more today than when I wrote it. The greatness of a man is determined by the cause we live for. We just touched on that this morning of those that have a cause to live for and die for. And then, of course, willing to pay the price to achieve it. Okay? Awesome. All right. Can someone else be bold enough to ask Charles Blair and his wife a question? Evan Martin. Be merciful, dear, please. How many days do we have? <laughs> well, I wrote a book. I did. Uh, didn't plan to, but uh, a ride. You talk, and on the cover is uh, is a picture of us going down the rapids of uh, the one of the rivers there in Colorado, and. Um, you know, everybody was surprised that I went along. I, I said when I married this man, I married a man who dreams big. And, uh, and sometimes that can pose a few problems in life because there can arise a conflict, even maybe where we spend a vacation. Uh, his idea of vacation was to go to Africa and shoot bears and lions and leopards and all of that. We have a house full of that stuff, too. But uh, my idea of a good time was to get in front of a, a warm, cozy fire with a good book, you know, and, or spend a lot of hours at the keyboard. And um, so 
those things can present problems sometimes, a little bit of conflict. So you've got to decide who's going to give and, you know, when you <laughs> come rise against the immovable objects that cannot be <laughs> moved, you have to determine then um, whether you're going to hear from the Lord or whether you're going to have your own way. I, uh, when we first came to Denver, we had a program daily broadcast called Prayer Time. And we used to open that with this song, Teach Me to Pray, Lord, Teach Me to Pray. And I would sing that as I was playing at the organ. And I thought today, driving down here, those words came back to me. Um, Living in thee, Lord, and thou in me, constant abiding, this is my plea. Grant me thy power, boundless and free, power with men, and power with thee. I thought I didn't know beans then when I sang that. But after these many years, God has answered that prayer. Teach me to pray. How does he do it? Sometimes he does it unexpected ways of bringing hard places. And um, one of the things he said today is the power of the scripture. I, I was reading that in uh, Romans 4 about Abraham, who hoped on, when all hope was gone, it said, he hoped on in faith, and he became strong. He was empowered by faith. I thought about that. God, did you mean he, he was so empowered by faith that he even fathered a son at 100 years old? But it says he was strengthened and empowered. So I've been working on this verse from the Amplified, which is in Philippians. For my determined purpose is that I may know him, that I may progressively become more deeply and intimately acquainted with him, perceiving and recognizing and understanding the wonders of his person more strongly and more deeply, and that I may in the same way come to know the power outflowing from his resurrection and that I may so share in his sufferings as to be continually transformed into his likeness. I had a dream once and we put it in a book. It isn't in the last book, but um, it was in a crisis time, the crisis. And um, in the dream, God give, just gave, gave me a picture of what was really going on. But the ending of the dream, I woke sitting up in bed, just shaking and trembling. And I said, I understand All of it except the ending. Lord, what was that? And these words just were thundering in my ears. He was transformed. I I said I, I was not able to see because he had the face of a young man and I didn't know what was going on. And God just whispered those to me. He was transformed. Sometimes... The ways he does it is hard for us to understand, 
but knowing that he, he works all things together for good. And that's his goal. And that's my determined purpose in life now, is to be transformed into his likeness. Bless you. Bless you. Thank you, buddy. Um, does anyone else have one more question? Yes, Mr. Bruce. didn't and we made a mess of some things uh, really and that's what Betty was saying sometimes we took things in our own hand and was out of sync with the Holy Spirit and by by lessons learned when you did and didn't would help to be indelibly imprinted upon you and you were a little more careful she used to say I, I can't go to bed alone in the guest bedroom she must be there in the same bed in case I start dreaming, she wants to erase it before it becomes a reality because of the mistakes that we have made, I have made. But I think one of the ways is to be to learn from those mistakes, be sensitive before the Lord, and be willing. There's a price to pay, and God will guide you through those days, I believe. It. Awesome. Okay? Well, it's my vote, if I could be so bold, to ask you to pray a blessing over us as the Mill Sunday School to close us. Who do you want? Both? Maybe, yeah, maybe both. One of you each. Pray for us. All right. Thank you for helping me. Father, what a great privilege you have given to us to enter your throne room and to ask. And you've said to ask and we shall receive and seek and we will find and knock and it shall be opened. So first of all, we thank you for that. We thank you for that gift you have given to us as human beings that we can, uh, we can implore the God of all, the almighty God the eternal, the everlasting Father, to come and to look upon us and to hear our cry. So today, Lord, we ask for a great blessing of your, a spiritual blessing upon these who have come today. And every hungry heart, I pray that you will meet that one where they are and you will speak to them. May they hear your voice loud and clear. And, Lord, may they give their will and their life in surrender to you. And we know what we give to you, you give back in greater abundance. Teach us how to surrender, how to repent, how to come to you and cast our cares upon you. And we're thanking you in advance in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Bless each life, ask your grace and your mercy to use them in an unreal way as far as the world looking on is concerned, but to bring them into a relationship that will change their life and their circle of influence for the cause of Christ. In your name we pray, amen. God bless you. We love you.